We're going to be back in Isaiah chapter 7 today, and then we're going to jump forward to the book of Matthew. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit in our text. Uh, I want to just give you some theological concept reminders from the outset, okay? Um, So when we think about God, uh, and we go to the Word for how we think about God, there's a lot of people that think about God, but they don't necessarily think about the biblical Jesus or, or who God is as revealed in scripture. It's a God that we've made. It's a God that we've created. Um, and we get some concepts that if God is powerful and real, uh, he, he would be separated. And, and for a lot of us, we've created a picture in our mind that, you know, a holy and righteous God is kind of like on a hill and, and we're down around that hill. And we then through religious acts and self-righteousness, uh, try to climb the hill. And so I, I'm, I'm going to cuss less, and I'm going to climb the hill towards God as a result of it. I'm going to drink less, and I'm going to climb the hill towards God as a result of it. I'm going to serve more, and I'm going to climb the hill, and I'm going to get closer to God as a result of it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus uh, more on giving to charity, so I'm going to climb the hill. And then, then when I get there, I'll be able to look and say, see, see I, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't party, I don't cuss, I don't, I don't. I don't, and God's like, wow, you've ascended the hill, and now you can live with me. That's, if I were to encompass what man-made version religion is, no matter what you call it, that it always is some summation of that story. I abstained, I changed, I'm the Savior, I'm the hero, I climbed the mountain, I'm good enough to be received by God enough to live and enjoy Him forever. The gospel is the exact opposite of that story. God is righteous. God is holy. We are not like him. As a result of sin, we're cut off from him. And what we have in the Christmas story is God sending the son from the throne down the hill into the valley. Living and walking amongst us but not falling as we have fallen, not failing where we failed. And as a result of it, living out the law perfectly in the flesh so that he could redeem those who were in the flesh to now live with God. His death was to stand as a substitute on your behalf. The text tells us that God made him, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become his righteousness. It's the great exchange, the great substitution. It's God being who he is without compromise, but making a way for us in our sin to not be cut off from him forever in his grace. That is the gospel and the good news. Now, in that story, we see two primary ways in which God works and moves. If you read your Bible cover to cover, you're going to discover more times than not God acting providentially. What's providence? That is uh, God in his authority making things happen and move towards his desired end without us necessarily being able to see, sense, or know that God is working and making his story happen. How do you know you've been in a life or history of providence? Well, that comes uh, in the rearview mirror. It's when you look back over a season that seemed godless, and in reflection through the rearview mirror, you go, man, I, I didn't 
think God was there, but upon further retrospection, I look back on that season of life and I now see God's goodness in ways that I was blind to when I was in it. Let me give you an example. The entire book of Ruth is a book of providence. God is not mentioned at all directly. But God is over every inch of the story. From the time Naomi and her husband, who was wanting to run to a more prosperous economy than to a God that he would trust in a famine, God was there. To the time that Naomi lost her husband and her sons, and therefore Ruth, the book's namesake, became a widow as well and found herself with Naomi having nothing and no hope and no future in the far off place away from the people of God, the community of God, the synagogue where God was worshipped or the presence of God where he would be worshipped at. Like away from all of that, God was there with them and in providence cared for them, provided for them and brought them back into the place of God with the people of God, the text says, as the harvest was coming in. This providence. And so the Bible speaks of a God who is providentially in control. But we also see in the Bible a God who miraculously intervenes. What does that mean? There are times where in spite of the statistical probabilities, God chooses to do what only God can do. And science can't explain it, and mathematics can't compute it. It's a miracle. And there has been a, in our culture, demeaning of the word miracle over the last several years that has now deduced a miracle to being an unlikely occurrence. A miracle is an unlikely, statistically highly improbable happening, which deduces it from what I think its original meaning is, and that is an act of God. And what we have in the Christmas story is an act of God that removes statistical probabilities from a lot of the equation. The question we're left with is, do you believe in miracles? Or more, more directly put, do you believe that God can do the miraculous? Basically, God can do what science says can't be done. God can do what mathematically doesn't compute to be a statistical probability. And I would submit to you that that question gets closer to the heart of the issue of the Christmas season than any amount of apologetics and reasons to believe and reasons for faith that I could give you. Because at the end of the day, if God exists and he is God and he is powerful and he is able, then God, if he is God, can do what God wants to do. But if there is no God, and if God doesn't exist, or if God's a, a, a weak, man-made version within a creation that he is not God over, then God is subject to that creation and its rules and its authorities and its boundaries. Therefore, he may be powerful, but he cannot be Alpha and Omega because he, he's not the beginning and he's not the end. He's not all-powerful. But the Christmas story is through the word, God revealing a story of God being able, beyond your ability to perceive him to be able. And the reason I believe it is not because it's just a miracle and 
we should just believe it because he's God. And if you believe in God, then you've got to believe that the impossible is possible. It's because on top of him being God and making the impossible possible, he pr- prophetically and in layers predicts the way in which he's going to do what he's going to do hundreds of years in advance before he does it. Many of you have gotten lucky on a bet on a Tuesday about a game that took place on a Saturday. And you, you, you could see through your genius that the way your team was practicing and eating, that they were going to be better suited to pull an upset on Saturday than Vegas was leaning with the numbers. And as a result, you predicted the upset. But what we have is not a single occurrence in our Bible of God predicting his coming, his living, his dying, his rising, but a story of God in layers predicting how he would come, where he would come, the things he would do, the way in which he would die, the way that people would react, so that you and I, in reading it with a reasonable mind, would come to the conclusion that only God could make that happen in calling his shot. So last week we looked at a 700-year-old predating the birth of Jesus text. Where we came across a king named Ahaz who was losing his mind and trusting in the world's powers more than he was trusting in God's power. And he's given an invitation The invitation from God was to ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, from God, make it as hard or as easy as you want. But Ahaz has no belief in God, no faith that God will answer or that God will move. He's a practical atheist. He's got the culture of being the people of God around him. He's got ancestors that love God and served him. But he's just wrapped up in the culture that he was born into. Does that sound familiar for anybody that grew up in the South? Does that sound familiar for anybody that's been in church long where you begin believing and finding out that your mouth is saying things that you don't necessarily in active faith believe that God can do? That's practical atheism. Grandma believed it, lived by it, and it affected the way that she viewed and lived in the world perhaps. But but the question is not, did grandma live by it? The question is, do you live by it? Otherwise, you're just like Ahaz, a practical atheist that's espousing things about a God that you don't even believe to be true about that God. Am I not preaching good or something? Are y'all? So after not asking for a sign from God in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Ahaz comes back in verses 5, 6, and 7 and says, fine. If you want to test the patience of God, if you don't believe that God is God, that God is able, I'll give you a son. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, from God through the prophet, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he says this. All right, then the Lord himself will give you the son. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Boom, boom, boom. Three things. The first one eliminates the likelihood of anyone standing up and saying, I'm the Messiah. Because it says there'll be a sign. What's the sign? To distinguish it out of all the rest of humanity. He'll be conceived by a virgin. It'll be a son. Okay, that's, if you started with, you're going to have a baby, it's going to be a boy, right? That's not, that 50-50 shot. 
right? You're either going to be born a boy or you're going to be born a girl. I don't care what people tell you. Like, that's the way it works. And, and, and at the end of the day, you have parties and YouTube videos filled with people, like, predicting what, what it's going to be. And then, like, some haphazard thing, kids are crying because they wanted a sister, not a brother. Like, they, they, in California, there was a family from Bakersfield. They did a gender reveal party, and they, they did some poppers that had a spark with it, and they set, like, 15,000 acres of forest on fire and had to, like, they're still paying for it. Like, so, so if you predict the gender, that's cool, but it doesn't make you God. If you communicate, though, that it's going to come through a virgin because God, by the Spirit, is going to cause a woman who has not had relations in the way that children are conceived in the normal way to have a baby, then, then that's, that would be an act of God, although it would be contested and doubted, which it still is. So there's going to be a son, there's going to be a son, and he will be what? Emmanuel, which means what? A good person who did good works, who became a God. No, that's Jehovah's Witness belief. A fallen angel and another creature who became a God. No, that, that's, that's, that's not what we believe. He was God predating him becoming incarnate. The theological term is the hypostatic union. There's a rap song about it. By cross movement. You should listen to it. Fully God and fully man. He pre-exists his arrival, fully God. In the garden and in the creation narrative, we read, let us make them in our... So they made them male and female. In the image of God, he made them. It's why Jesus gets in so much trouble. Because he looks at a group of Pharisees and teachers that loved killing people. How many of you have ever been to a church that just loves telling people they're wrong? They don't have good news. They just like beating the crap out of everybody. Anybody been there? You been in that church? Welcome to church. You suck. Have a good week. Which isn't necessarily always wrong. But we should give a little bit of good news on the back end. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're a new creation in Christ. The old has come, the new has come. We should, we should leave you with a little bit of Jesus is making something out of the ashes. Beauty for ashes. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, like, you got to give something. So the Pharisees, they're talking to Jesus about who he is, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's why they killed him. He was not, it's not because he was a teacher, a good teacher, or a pro, it's because he claimed to be God. He claimed to predate his birth on earth. So it'll be a son. The virgin will conceive. She will give birth to a son. And he'll be Emmanuel. God with us. Which is still one of the most confounding truths for us to consider. What would a holy and righteous God want to do with hanging out with people like us? That's why it's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Because a holy and righteous God did not refrain or hide or conceal himself in his holiness from us, but he chose to come and walk amongst us. And he touched the leper's spots. And he opened blind eyes. 
And he knelt down and rode in the dirt by the woman who was caught in adultery and bared her shame with her. He meets with the women who go out in the heat of the day to get water because they've been ostracized from their community because of their behavior and they no longer fit within their society and they're on the margins. He's the God who heals the dead, who brings them back to life. He, he's, he's the God who makes the lame walk, the mute speak. I mean, th- this is what it was to have Emmanuel with us. Now, if, if all we have is Isaiah 7, 14, there'll be a sign, there'll be a son, and he'll be Emmanuel. That, man, that's pretty layer, layered and narrowing. But, but then you begin to look at the rest of the Old Testament, and then, then it really gets interesting. For instance, 750 years in advance of the Messiah's coming, in the book of Micah, I'm sure all of you have read it, There is a prediction about the town in which Jesus would be born. How many of you had control over where you were born? Just looking for hands. How many of you were like, I'm going to be born in Pendleton. It's going to happen. We ain't going to Greenville in the big city. No, I'm dropping in Pendleton in the streets. Right? Because if you, if you, all right, let's just be honest. If you could pick where you were born, is anyone choosing Gaffney? Let's be honest. I mean, they don't even have fats anymore. Why go? I, like, why, why even bother? Like, don't tell me the outlets. You ain't getting a deal. You can't, you can't choose where you're born, yet God says, this is where my Messiah, this is where my son is going to be born. That's, that's narrowing and layering prophetic text so that you and I have reason to believe the miraculous work that this is an act of God that brought us the Messiah, that gives us the good news so that we could have hope. So, so what, what, what does the text say? I mean, if it's there, what does it mean? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Can you go there with me? Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Apathra, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you. From you. One whose origins are from the distant past. 750 years predating his birth, we're told in Scripture that out of the 12 tribes of Israel where it was most likely for the Messiah to be born, that he would be born in the smallest of the 12 tribes. Bethlehem in Jesus' time had 300 people in it. 300. You think you come from a small town. I mean, Sugar Tit, I think, now has more than 300. Small town. What's the statistical likelihood out of all the nation of Israel that Jesus would be born in there? I mean, they have the least likely odds. They've got like one half of a ticket that's in the hat with all the rest of the tickets for the population. More, more than likely, there's less than a dozen kids being born in Bethlehem a year. And that's on a good year where someone's having triplets or twins or something. But here in, in the least of the cities of Israel, God's going to bring his Messiah. Why? There's a lot we could teach on it. There's a lot I could preach about it. God loves to use underdogs. He loves to use things that are overlooked. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Don't despise the day of small beginnings, the book of Zephaniah tells us, because God loves to see the work begin. You see, a lot of you, you want a big God to move in a big way first, but what you need to understand about our God is he often moves in subtle and small ways first, and it's in subtle and small things that God moves first and then brings about big moves that change the world. So a lot of you don't believe God's up to big stuff because you're in a small place doing small things with small resources, but it's often in small places and with small resources that we find God doing big things under the surface. 
Many of you want to start in the paper. The best thing God has done for you is he's kept you out of the paper. People overlook you. They don't see you. They don't even know what God's doing in you. (laughs) But God is doing something of significant glory that's going to echo in eternity for his name forever. And it may be revealed on earth and people may know the full weight of what God is doing in you at some point in your time on earth. They may begin to herald you and thank God for you and point to you because God is working in such a powerful way in you. But let me just encourage you with something. Enjoy the obscurity. Can I just encourage you that that the obscurity is one of my favorite places now? Like when people don't know we're doing something, when people don't know what's up, when people aren't paying attention, that's when I feel like I'm able to prioritize God the best because I don't have to prioritize meeting after meeting with people that want to talk about what God is doing. I just get to be with God and do the stuff that I love doing with God. Bethlehem was small, but it was not insignificant in biblical history. It was a town of about 300 people, but it had a huge biblical past. It was too small for them to draft an army to be a part of the army of Israel. But it it was too big in biblical history to be ignored. I mean, it's there in Bethlehem that Boaz and Ruth meet each other. The book of Ruth that we talked about just a minute ago. It's there in Bethlehem that a king after God's own heart was born and overlooked by his father Jesse, but chosen by God first and revealed to the prophet Samuel. Big history, small beginning. And it's predicted that there would be the place in which Jesus would be born and he would come into earth. So he's going to be born of a virgin, he'll be a son, he'll be Emmanuel, God with us, and he'll be born in Bethlehem. If you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to be those four things. This is why I love the Bible so much. In your Old Testament, there are over 300 Messianic prophecies about God. There's 300 of them, okay? Now, there was a professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. And then he went on to Westmont College uh, to oversee the mathematics and science division. And he loved running numbers. So he went on to look at what is the statistical probability of you or I, I've just listed four predictive prophecies about the Messiah. What's the likelihood of you or I meeting eight of the predicted prophetic criteria of being the Messiah? What's the likelihood out of 300 layered predictive prophecies about the way you would be born, the way that he would live, and the way that he would die, that you and I would qualify to being the Messiah? So what's the likelihood of you and I meeting eight of the 300 predictive prophecies? The answer he came back with through his mathematics education is that the likelihood of us meeting eight is one in one zero 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 which is one in 100 quadrillion statistically speaking you and i have a better chance of being struck by a falling space satellite than fulfilling eight of the prophecies of the Messiah. That's what the chances are. What is God doing? He is revealing a holy one and he's revealing that he's not like everyone else. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7, 14. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. What does it go on to say? Let me give you a few more. Number three, uh, rulers from afar will come and worship him. How many of you have a nativity at home? You have one set up? Grandma had it? Yeah, okay. So um, take the wise men, if the nativity's in your living room, and walk them to the kitchen if you want to be biblically accurate. Okay? And then every day, just, just creep them a little closer. Just creep them. 
then in about two years, have them arrive. But predating Jesus' coming, we're told that there will be rulers, kings, that would come from far off lands to worship him. And it's amazing in the way that God describes what they would do. Look, look at it with me. In Psalm chapter 72, verses 10 to 12, uh, and you just got verse 15 up there, but in 10 to 12, it lists out, can you get the 10 to 12 up quick for me? Can you go there with me? If not, I can grab it. We have verse 15, but that's 15, yeah. But just look at this one. Look at 10 to 12 in your quiet time this week. There you have it. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. You ready? Vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah, the people of Sheba, will bring... Ready? Some of you know this because of the California Raisins Christmas special. Anybody remember that? Star of wonder. Star. Okay. We'll bring gold and frankincense and we'll come worshiping the Lord. What do they show up with? Gold. And, and, and look, look, were the people that showed up Israelites that believed in God? No. What does that mean? They aren't reading the Torah. They aren't reading the Old Testament going, all right, what, what do we need to bring whenever they start their journey? They took what was most valuable that God had allowed to be present in their culture, and they brought it as a representation of their kingdom to come and worship God. What God knew hundreds of years in advance is that he had stocked valuable resources in different regions and in different places, and those leaders, when they came to worship the Lord, will come with the resources that he had made available to them. There's nothing in your hands that God doesn't rightly say, mine. God put it and made it available for you to gain through work, through effort, through whatever. But it all belongs to God. And God in his sovereignty and in his power goes, this is what's going to happen. They're going to come. Here's what they're going to bring. And this is what it's going to look like. Hundreds of years in advance. We read this. This is interesting. What's another one? Let me give you one more, and then I'm going to get to the point of why I'm talking about all this stuff. How many of you, when you were a kid, got told by your parents, we're moving? Okay? Now, if you're not a millennial, here's what, here's what I can guarantee your parents didn't do. Because if you're a millennial, it's different. Parents sit you down, they're like, mom and dad are thinking about moving. How do you feel about this? Let's discuss whether or not we should move. Okay? Do you want to move? Do you kind of want to move? Are you unsure? Okay. Let me explain to you how this worked growing up. My dad decided we were moving. My mom decided she was in agreement with said plan. And they came and informed us, we're moving. Pack the house. Right? Throughout most of history... Children were not consulted for guidance on life adult decisions. We're in a time in human history where we must have the smartest kids because many parents are consulting their kids for the adult decisions that they're supposed to be making. It's remarkable <laughs> how smart these children are. Just because they can use your smartphone does not mean they're ready for adult decisions. It's going to leave that there and let you smoke it for a while. <laughs> you don't have control over when your family moves when you're a kid. 
But God, preeminent and predictive in his prophecy about the way in which Jesus would come, predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem, but that he would then flee to Egypt. There's a lot of theological reasons around it. Part of which is that it's out of Egypt they came, and whenever God delivered them, he delivered them from their bondage and their slavery from Egypt. And Jesus is the greater Moses who was coming to deliver all of the world from their sin and into relationship with God. So we can draw on all sorts of gospel, uh, gospel moments and pictures that come out of the story, but God's connecting the story all the way back. And you'll understand this. This is a, a, a thing that God does in the Bible. Like, why do you, anyone ever wonder why is there a genealogy in Matthew and Luke? Like, why I read through all those names? Because Jesus was taking us all the way back and making up for everything that had been done so that he could bring us forward into everything that God was calling us to do. So whenever you read the genealogies, they go back and connect in different spots to point Jesus was writing everything that was wrong. In Corinthians, it goes so far as to say the lesser Adam, our first father Adam, who failed, uh, has now been... Uh, uh, succeeded by the greater Adam. I know all of you are really in tune and excited about all this theology I'm giving you right now. I can tell. Just get to the point, Russ. But here, here, here's what I'm trying to get at. There's a prediction that he would flee to Egypt. So if you're going to be the Messiah, you're going to be born of a virgin, born a son, you've got to be God with us, Emmanuel. There are a lot of people that say they're a God. Everybody's a king. Everybody's talking about the crown they're wearing, which is going to get to my point in just a second. Uh, you've got to be born in Bethlehem. So everybody's been eliminated, right? Anybody born in modern-day Bethlehem? Okay, you've got, you got to be born in Bethlehem, just off of these. Uh, you've got to uh, have rulers come afar and worship you. Probably didn't happen in Greenville Memorial. And then, as a child, your family's got to flee to Egypt. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Peter Stoner, the guy I was talking about earlier, said this, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact that is proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's a guy that wasn't a believer that became a believer studying the claims of the Bible. See, as I continue to study the Bible, historical documents, archaeological findings, I no longer am finding a lack of reasons to believe in the Bible's claims, but instead I find that Christ leaves no one indifferent about him, and that's the real problem. Some of you today would say, I don't believe because I don't believe there's facts or history or science or reliability to believe in God. And I would say, baloney. What I would say is that every single one of us that have met Jesus have had one of two responses to Jesus. We have either run to him or we have run from him and tried to ignore him. And I can show you from people that don't believe the way that I believe. Atheist Thomas Nagel in an interview was quoted as saying this about his atheistic beliefs. I want atheism to be true. How many times have you heard the accusation against the believing community that they need it to be true? You don't, you don't follow the actual evidence you need this to be true. You want it to be true. That's their condemning accusation. However, look at this confession from a leading atheist who attacked the faith. I want atheism to be true. A lot of science in that, isn't there? A lot of historical evidence in that want. Look at, look at this confession, this honesty. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. 
Why? Because if there was a God, then it would wreck his comfort and desire for a world devoid of God. The confession he's making is not one of, I don't believe because of a lack of evidence. It's one of, I don't want to believe because of a lack of convenience. It is more convenient to him to believe in a world and in a life without a God where he is God, where he can make morals, where he can make the standard, where he can live the way that he wants to live with no fear of a God that is righteous and holy giving any kind of judgment than it is to come to the sobering fact that if you look at the evidence, there is reason that points to a divine design behind all of creation that has been fine-tuned by a designer that desires glory that then would lead you down a path to look at God calling his shot prophetically throughout history to bring about a Messiah into that history that would redeem and do for the people within history that they couldn't do for themselves. But instead of going down the path of the evidence, it's easier to stay in your preconceived idea that there can't be a God because if there is a God, then he would be king and I would be a servant that would need to bow before him. Pastor Timothy Keller said it this way, if the son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost all right to have any charge of our lives. If I'm being honest, not for the atheists that I've quoted, but for the people that are in these pews, that's the real crux and issue that a lot of us have with Jesus being king. There is a demonic thing that is culturally happening within the southeast of the United States that is going to lead to a lot of people being shocked when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. There, is a, there are a lot of people in this room who on their census would check the box Christian, who would quote Bible verses and give an assent to the fact that they believe in the idea that Jesus is Savior, Messiah, and God. However, what they are claiming is no different than what the demons claim in Scripture whenever they acknowledge the lordship of God, even shudder at the idea of God, but they do not surrender to him as king and lord. There are a lot of people in here, in this room, who have grown up in religious circles who would say, I believe in God, yet you don't serve him as your king. You still reign, you still rule, you still live and do as you desire to do. And the problem is, the reason this happens is we're no different than a guy named Herod that's in the book of Matthew. In fact, I just want you to note this. Inside of all of us, there's a little Herod that is constantly keeping us from wanting to to bow, surrender, and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're good with God. We're good with God being God as long as he leaves us unchanged and alone. But the idea of a God that requires our absolute and total allegiance and surrender is the kind of God that we've edited out of Scripture and we call him unloving, bigoted, and ungracious. So what happens? If you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, we get a story. Matthew 2, 1 to 12. I'll go through it quickly, and I will make a big point about it. Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. The story begins with the birth narrative of Jesus saying he was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Micah chapter 5. Are you tracking with me? Where is the newborn king of the Jews, they asked Herod. We saw his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Okay, let me just go and communicate to you. Many of you came today to be told by God 
you're good, keep doing you. And you're good as long as God leaves it at that. What you're not here today to hear is God loves you. God has demonstrated his love for you. God has died because of your sin on your behalf as your substitute. God has risen in victory over that sin and now offers a new way and a new life through surrender to him by grace through faith. But (laughs) that means in order to receive that grace, there is an absolute and utter emptying of everything you are. God, everything I am, everything that's well put together, everything that is good, everything that I hold dear, God, in recognition of you and who you are, I lay it down in surrender and in faith because I just want you. Okay? You're tracking with me. And that means I let go of the reins of determining what is good and what is bad. Keep in mind that even the garden called the fruit good. For a lot of us in this room, we are living a life that says, God, you're king, but what you call evil, I'm still calling good, and I'm okay with it. I don't need your input. I don't, I, I, just give me the grace for that part, because that ain't changing. That's the way I am. That's how I've identified myself. That's how I, I, I laid the foundation in which I built my entire world around. And I'm not ready to negotiate and lay down my entire world. I just need you to be enough to overcome my acceptable, approvable, overlooked sin. No, I give up the, the ability to be king. The ability to determine good from bad. I, I give up the ability to set the moral standard. God, you say this is good. It feels bad. It disagrees with me. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't desire it. But here's the, and this is the crux. This is where we find out if God's king or not, okay? In that moment when God's word is clear, and my life does not align with God's word, I can either edit it, which means I do not want to serve the God that is revealed in it, or I can go, God, I don't know how. I don't know if I'll like it, but I believe you're worth it. And I want you more than I want my comfort. I want you more than I want what I think is good. And if you say something is bad that I have called good, then I repent and I turn from what I am calling good. And I am trusting because you are good that you will give me your goodness and in your power and in your presence and in communion with you, you will transform and change my heart. Not to where I'll never desire sinful things again. Are you kidding me? I still want to punch people in the throat on 85. Are you, like, I just don't. Like, I, I, in a while. It's been a, been a week or two, okay? Like, it's been a while. I, st- I still want to do bad things. It's not that the desire's gone. It's just the greater desire wins. The greater desire is I want communion. I want fellowship. I want to walk with God. I want to honor God. I want to live with God. I want to love God. I want to serve God. And if that's the greatest desire, then the lesser desire dies. But the problem is it's not the greater desire for a lot of us in the room. So we hear that there's a king coming, and we act like Herod. Herod was nuts. A historian recorded that it was better to be Herod's dog than it was to be his family member. (laughs) 
He killed multiple wives because he thought they were taking his throne and usurping his authority. He killed multiple sons because he thought they were taking over his throne. He killed his firstborn son who was heir to his throne, uh, who was uh, born to one of his wives, Doris, who he loved deeply. He killed, he killed him because he thought he was going to take his throne. And then Herod died five days later. So naturally he hears, where's the newborn king of the Jews? And what's his response? King Herod was deeply, that doesn't go with my agenda of succession and how this is supposed to happen. That doesn't go with my agenda of how I think life is supposed to be played out. He can't accept the real king because he's too busy sitting on his seat. Trying to fit into his shoes and wear his crown. He'd rather wear a crown than cast a crown. And you and I have been made to take the crowns of lordship and leadership over our life and cast them at the feet of Jesus. I could stay here all day and do this. Three of you would still be with me. It would be awesome. He's disturbed. When it comes to the fact that Jesus is king, are you disturbed? Or, like the Magi, have you come to... There's, There's no middle ground. Either, either I've come to worship him or I, I've come to be approved by him so that I can continue to worship me. My feelings, my comfort, what I call good. So, so what are you here to do? Are you here to worship a king? Or are you here to worship yourself as king and be approved by the king of kings so that you can think in some kind of conceited, deceptive way, I'm good, I don't need him? Many people are disturbed. Because he's king. But the second group, this is the most puzzling group. And this is the group that's probably in front of me right now. Verse 4 and 5. I'm not trying to say this is all of us, but this is where I've been. He called a meeting, Herod, with the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Okay? So the religious leaders get the question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. Who are they quoting? Micah. 750 years in advance, a ruler will come from you who will be shepherd of Israel. Verse 7. So the priest, in hearing the question from Herod, heard that the Messiah was arriving, went on a journey to Bethlehem to go and see if the person that Herod was asking about had arrived. Now, what did they do? Nothing. They're not in the story anymore. They're not in your nativity at home. They're not around the manger. They didn't care. It didn't change anything. They stayed indifferent, and that's the problem. A lot of you, you've been coming to church your whole life, and it doesn't matter. It's just what you do. You're as indifferent as the priest in the Christmas story. Yeah, God's reigning. He's ruling. We'll go to church next week. It's raining this week. Online. There was a football game, though. Ha! We're going to go out in the rain. I don't even need a poncho. Don't need one. What's the greater desire? I can tell you by a lot of your social media what your greater desire is. I mean, this is, the, this is the challenge of the Christmas season. We are here because there is a king that is acting. 
God loves you. He has actively demonstrated that love towards you. And by his grace and mercy, he has invited you and I into relationship with him. God has not made a promise that your life will be easy. God has not made a promise that he will be allegiant to making your dreams come true. Your dream is too small. And you as God makes yourself and your potential and your future too limited. God is too big to make your small dream his dream. God has a big dream. And he's invited you to have your story intersected by that work and that move. You and I have been created to worship. In fact, everywhere you go, you worship something. The question is not, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping today? Many of us have bent the knee to the throne of our agenda, of our desire, of our feelings, of our beliefs about what we think and want to be true. But we've been invited and created to bend our knee to his throne, to his kingdom, to his reign, and to his rule. So here's what I want you to know. Maybe this is old school, but I think it's just biblically accurate. I plead with you to stop trying to be little Herods and to stop being indifferent priests and to come to the throne of grace and bend your knee. I plead with you. I plead with you. Not because your surrender is needed for his will and his way and his work to be done on earth, because I'll be honest with you. God doesn't have to have you to do what he's going to do. He doesn't require you to bring his kingdom to fruition. It's an invitation. It is a gift. It is an honor. It is a grace. It is a mercy. It is something that we get to be a part of. And the truth is, Jesus is going to return. He's going to return. The first time he came, he came in grace as a substitute. The second time he comes, he comes as judge and Lord over the world. And you may not bow now. But that's the invitation, bow now. Because when he comes back, everything and everyone will bow. But it will not be in reception of his grace and his mercy. It'll be before his judgment seat and his throne and eternity. So we invite you, bow now. Surrender now. To the God who is King and Lord, Alpha and Omega, Messiah and Savior. Bow and surrender. Man, he's not safe, as a really famous movie put it in book, but he's good. He's not safe, but boy, he's good. Prayer team, you come. If you need the Lord, you come. Bend your knee. Let's respond.